going to start next week going through what we call Old Testament survey class. Um, and this is going to be a little bit different. We want to continue to remember, keep in mind that what we do here is not consumeristic in nature. And what I mean by that is we don't come to sit and hear, have a little tiny feeling of encouragement, and then go on without anything to practice. Remember, all theology is practical, right? Everything that we teach here gives you an opportunity to reproduce that, to live that, to practice that, and then to particularly to use it to make disciples. And so what we want to do is coming next week is we want to start with material that we think is simple and reproducible. That each week when you walk in here, your mindset is, how can I take what's being taught and use it to fulfill the Great Commission? Right? You know the Great Commission is not just for pastors, right? Okay, good. Um, I want to make sure you do. Uh, we talked about that last week. In fact, let's go ahead and read the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28. I know that's not in your notes. That's my fault. Um, but... Just to open us up and remind us a little bit where we were last week, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Uh, these, this is the text. This is the text of the commission. Um, it's found in other places as well, but this one right here is the one pretty much everybody knows. So let's read that, and I'll read that uh, for you right now. And Jesus came and spoke to them, being the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, so last week we saw how this is not really anything new, right? The Great Commission is not something that really should have surprised those who heard it the first time to say, Oh, I, I never really knew we were supposed to go and, and take the gospel to the nations. Because we see it all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, I gave you like what? Like 20 verses last week in the Old Testament about the Great Commission and how it's shown all throughout the story of biblical theology. We saw that first it was promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, right? That all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And then Abraham was then on mission. We saw that picked up even in Israel. Everything Israel was supposed to do was not just to be secluded from all the nations. They were to be a beacon of light to bring in all the nations. The Psalms are filled with charges to the nations to praise the one true King Jesus. And we saw Jesus was on mission as well. Remember what he says in, in John chapter 2 when he cleanses the temple. He's talking about, you've made my house into a den of robbers. And remember, he's in the court of where. The Gentiles, right? He's in the court of the Gentiles and saying, this is, this is my house, right? Jesus was on mission the way he lived his life. And then we started with God's mission, the church. We know that the, the, the gospel and the, the mission was promised through the Old Testament, but we see this picked up in the New Testament church. We recognize that every church is on mission. Every single one of them is charged with the Great Commission. There's no escape from this if you belong to the family of God. And yet, if you're looking at it like, I'm, I really need to escape from this, then your mentality is probably really wrong about not only the Great Commission, but church in general, right? Uh, and then secondly, we saw that the, before we even get to evangelism, it is very, very important. In fact, it is central to proclaiming the gospel that the church bears witness to the authenticity of the gospel, Right? This is why in our worship, grow, serve, purpose statement, each one of those has 
an end to it. Because there's an individual element, but there's also a corporate element that we have as a local church. Our unity together will be a great vehicle, the greatest vehicle, for us to be able to propel and, and, and um, proclaim the gospel among the nations. So it has to start within the church, right? It has to start with us bearing one another's burdens, being united to Christ, and loving one another. And yet we saw, as we pick up now, that this does not mean that we don't proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean, well, we really need to wait till we're close together as a church before we proclaim the gospel. No, of course, that's where we start out today, is the C, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is to proclaim it. We've got to proclaim it when we gather, right? Our love and our unity, yes, they are necessary, but it's not sufficient. The gospel must still be proclaimed. In fact, every part of our worship service on Sunday, by the way, proclaims the gospel. Or it should, at least, right? Sometimes we're off just a little bit, and it doesn't, but it should always proclaim the gospel. We gather together to proclaim to one another and to everyone else that God has done this. He has brought blessing to all the families of the earth. We are proof He has caused us to remember and return to God, to be reconciled and adopted into His family, rescuing us from the wrath to come. So we thank Him, we praise Him, we honor Him, and glorify Him. That is what we're doing here on Wednesday nights and also on Sundays as well. We sing songs that teach the gospel. Even the giving of our offering teaches the gospel. You know that? It really does. It's not just simply giving. It's about recognizing that God owns all things, so we give Him a portion of it. But after Christ, it's it's recognizing that he who was rich made himself poor so that we might become rich. It's even more than that. It proclaims the gospel. I've been brought, I've I've been pot, I've been purchased by the blood of Christ. What I now have, including my life and everything in it, belongs to him. Not simply because he created me, but because he's recreated me to gospel ministry. Our offering is a grace that we joyfully exercise in him. The sermon proclaims Jesus, hopefully, I hope you're hearing that, or fire me, right? Uh, I mean, talk to me first, uh, maybe give me a chance to repent, but, um, but eventually. Uh, I won't go into detail, but listen, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what are we proclaiming? Right, we're proclaiming that Jesus sacrificially atoned for the sin of sinners. Uh, that new covenant in His blood, the promise of His Return And when we celebrate baptism, what are we doing? We're proclaiming the gospel. We're dramatizing so that all can see what has taken place. That because Christ has died for all, all have died in Him. Raised to walk in newness of life. This is who we are. Born of the gospel, built to the gospel. We're a gospel people. It is in our DNA. And listen, by God's grace, I think... We get that here at First Baptist Church of Great Gables. I do. I think we rightly understand the role of the church to proclaim the gospel that people are built up in the gospel. I think we get that we are called to bear witness of the gospel in our community life together. I see it all the time. I praise God for it. I mean, listen, I really do think you guys love each other well. Perfectly, no. But well, yes. In fact, I can bear witness to your love for one another. I thank our Father for it continually. I think we know that we're committed to proclaiming the gospel every time we gather. 
and, I, and I'm just not sure, though, how committed we are or how convicted we are that when we leave these doors or the premises of this building, our responsibility to proclaim the gospel intensifies. That, it, that it's not about us. See, see, if all we do when we gather week after week, it's it, it just so that we can be built up. We're doing something wrong. I mean, listen, we are God's chosen instrument for proclaiming the gospel to a world that's dying. And outside those doors, people are dropping. I mean, in a sense, they're already dead, but they're dying again. And we have the life-giving message of Christ. We are to be proclaiming the gospel message into the world. And that's the next thing we see there is that you and I, we must, must take the gospel message into the world. Every day, everywhere we go, every opportunity we have, we are to be proclaiming Christ. And though I'm sure we're being faithful in the first point, friends, I'm just, I'm not convinced we're being faithful here. I'm really not sure we're all laboring to evangelize unbelievers. I mean, you realize, listen, please, I know I've got to be careful here, but, but we baptized five in the last month. My daughter was astounded at that. She had no idea really what it was. Had never really witnessed a baptism before. And I get it. I, I know. She's, she's never seen one before. And, and listen, does that bother anyone? Yeah. Sure didn't bother me. And you realize in five years here, I can't recall a whole lot of people who have been converted. There are some, but not a whole lot of people besides kids. And, and listen, I praise God for that. But, but you know what that says? It says there's not a lot outside of our little comfort zones who've been transformed by the life-giving message of the gospel from our ministry of evangelization. I think we need to grow here. Listen, obviously I'm speaking to myself here, right? I know that. I think we need to repent. And I think there's opportunity for growth. I think we would do well to metaphorically fall on our faces and say, Lord, you have given us much. And we've not been as faithful as we should be. I think we need to grow here, folks. But listen... I don't think we need to grow by creating programs. I don't, I don't think that's the answer. I'm not saying we can't do outreach events and they don't have a place. We should do that. But I don't think that ultimately it's the answer. I think there's a deeper issue in play that we have to address. Now, I'm just going to put it like this. I think that what has to be addressed is that we do not have a culture of evangelization here. This is God's mission, a culture of evangelism. This is his mission, that we would create a culture of evangelism. I, I feel like this is where we struggle, folks. Like, it's in our DNA because we belong to him. We're, we're saved by the gospel and built up in the gospel. So it's part of our DNA. And yet we really don't have a culture that actually sees the importance of, works into, and labors to evangelize our neighbors, community, city, nation. So here's my recommendation. What do we do to change this? What do we do to maybe create a culture of evangelism here in the church? The first one's easy. We have to be controlled by the love of Jesus. That's, that starts it. 
If we want to create a culture of evangelization here, we must be controlled by the love of Jesus. I know that sounds obvious enough, doesn't it? But hear me, please. Faithful evangelists are not equipped or motivated better by guilt trips. If, if our culture of evangelization, if it's born out of you just hearing that and feeling guilty because Pastor Cody said we're not doing a good enough job, maybe it'll last till tomorrow afternoon. Not long. Honestly, you'll probably get a week out of it. Maybe if you're really convicted, a month, maybe even a couple months out of you. But until you and I, until we are all controlled by the love of Christ, we will not have a culture of evangelism. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us. And really that word compel is controls us. It's more than compel. Compel is kind of weak. It, it owns us. It controls us. He says, Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. If he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. See, this is why we implore all people to be reconciled to God, because we're controlled by the love of Christ. And as we go in gratitude and love for all that Christ has done for us, we will grow in our desire to see people follow Him. It will bother us as it should when we see people dishonoring Him with their lives, serving idols and worshiping themselves. And if you stop and think about this, it, it's probably not exactly, anyway, how you were taught that evangelization works. See, the emphasis in evangelization for many years in our culture has been on the love of people. Mm. But listen, I'm not saying that's a bad motivation, but, but I, I disagree that it's the right motivation. The emphasis for our evangelism should be on the love of Christ. <laughs> We should be driven and compelled by love for Jesus to share the gospel with our neighbors. Here's why. If, you are, if your emphasis is on the love of your neighbor, the love of your family member or whoever, you just love them so much that they, they must be saved, you know what's going to happen? You are ultimately at some point going to be tempted or frustrated and be tempted to pervert the gospel. It's going to come. It's not primarily about your family member or your neighbor. Yes, we should love them. But it's not one or the other. It's a false dichotomy, but still hear me. If it's not grounded in a love for Christ, it won't last. You won't share the whole gospel. You won't call people to faith and repentance and encourage them to count the cost. Listen, Peter, 1 Peter 3 does not write, In your hearts, honor people. He writes, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It must be the love of Christ that controls you and me, for only our love for Christ is really the thing that will propel us to proclaim the gospel when we're persecuted, rejected, and despised. And we will be. Only being controlled by the love of Jesus will encourage you to proclaim the gospel message as you sit in chains. That's it. I mean, listen, are you prepared to do that? You won't be if your motivation is love for people. Hear me. Jesus died because he loved us. The scriptures say so. But he came because he loved the Father. 
And the better you understand the gospel, the more you marvel at the mystery of Christ revealed in the gospel. The more you stand in awe of God's patience, mercy, love, and justice demonstrated through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension. The more you will want to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, don't you see that as the motivation? When you grow in your love for Him, and you're all what Christ has done, what the Father has accomplished through the Christ, as you consider the totality of the gospel, what it means, when you consider it, you won't be able to stop from talking about it. Spurgeon put it like this. He says, do you want arguments for soul winning? Look up to heaven and ask yourself how sinners can ever reach those harps of gold and learn their everlasting song. Unless they have someone to tell them of Jesus who is mighty to save. But the best argument of all is to be found in the wounds of Jesus. You see what he's saying there? How else are they going to be reconciled to God if you don't preach the message? True. But the best argument of all is to be found in the wounds of Jesus. He says, you want to honor him? You desire to put many crowns upon his head. And this you can best do by winning souls for him. These are the spoils that he covets. These are the trophies for which he fights. These are the jewels that shall be his best adornment. Love for Christ controls us. Listen, we gather and we claim to love Jesus, and I don't doubt the sincerity of that statement. But this week in my own life, I've doubted its intensity. I mean, how intense are we about a love for Jesus, right? It's easy to say we love Jesus, especially in Callahan, Florida. Smack dab in the middle of the Bible, Bible Belt. Super easy to say you love Jesus. That's what it's all about, right? Country music, Jesus, and six pack. That's what the culture says. Perfectly fine with me. But friends, I, I'm beginning to question our intensity for love for Christ. And, and specifically outside these doors. It's easy to, to love him in here. What happens tomorrow when the alarm rings to get up and go through another day? Two more days to the weekend so I can just seclude myself, get away from everybody else. I don't know what we're all doing. Listen, I'm, I'm preaching myself here too. I hope you know that. We claim to be jealous for the gospel. We spend a lot of time talking about how we preach the true gospel here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. And, and praise God, I think we do. I, I do think we, we preach the true gospel by His grace. But then we walk out the doors. We don't share it. It's ludicrous. Really what it is, is it's inconsistent. We have truth. People are dying. We have truth. And that truth can give them life. We spend time with them, but we withhold the thing they need most. And why? Fear? Maybe. Second point kind of leads us to this. Yeah, we must be controlled by the love of Jesus, but we also must be emboldened by our confidence in the gospel. We must be emboldened by our confidence in the gospel. We have to have a bold faith because of the gospel. Because we know what it's accomplished in our life. What does Paul write in Romans 1.16? He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It's a verse we're all familiar with, isn't it? 
this is all I really want to say under this heading. Everyone who's sitting in this room, if you are saved, you've been saved by the gospel. There is no one who has been saved that wasn't saved because they heard the gospel. It wasn't because you were smarter than the guy sitting next to you. It wasn't because you figured it out or because you had a convincing argument. I'm not going to argue with your perception. Maybe that's the experience of your conversion. But I assure you the scriptures say that the only reason you are saved is because of the power of God working through the gospel. The Holy Spirit applying it, bringing regeneration, death to life. It was the gospel. That is what we have. Listen, you don't need to be eloquent. You, you don't need to, to be passionate even, though you should. You simply need to speak the gospel. You need to proclaim the news that Jesus Christ has reconciled people to God, that all things are being reconciled to Him and in Him. That we who are once separated from God, that we who are awaiting the wrath of God to be separated for all eternity from God, that is from His blessing, not from His wrath, God will be present in wrath. That we who are under that sentence have been saved, rescued, redeemed, adopted, justified, sanctified in Christ. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to explain that. But to say nothing is not an option. It's not. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Listen, you know what apologetics is, right? Those are those guys that get in the debates, right? They love... It's called Facebook Christianity, right? It's, it's the, the debate politics of... Uh, it's really defending the faith is what it is. And, and that's, there's a place for that. First Peter commands us that we are to defend the gospel. We are. But, but hear me. Apologetics and evangelism are not the same thing. They're not. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. Evangelism is the proclamation of the faith. Now, they can often fit together nicely... But they're not the same thing. I want us to be better equipped to offer a reasoned defense of the faith. Sure. I want us all to be a good apologist, presuppositionalist. But don't think that just because you've offered a defense that you've proclaimed the gospel. People need to hear the gospel. And all of us can do that. And something that's been disheartening is I've recognized I've had a lot of people come up to me and desire discipleship, desire growth, so that they can argue more for their faith. And again, I, I get it. It's not, we should be a good apologist. But the amount of people I've had want discipleship and growth because they want to be able to make a point, and the type of people I've had that want discipleship and growth because they want to see souls won to Jesus, it's incomparable. It's heartbreaking. And I just, I just realized that. I stopped and realized that. People need to hear the gospel. And here's the beauty about it. If you've received the gospel, you're qualified to proclaim it. Number three. We must also, if we want a culture of evangelism, we might need to be controlled by the love of Christ, certainly. We need to be emboldened in our confidence in the gospel, yes. But third, we must be reminded to see people through the lens of Jesus. We have to. 
I think a lot of times we have a really bad theology here about what that looks like. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, Therefore, from now on, we regard, hear what he says, no one according to the flesh. Hmm. We need to own the fact that certainly, yeah, we're, we're prone to cultural bias, but, but guys, we see people through the lens of the world no more. We don't. You know what you look at when you see, when you look at people now through the lens of Christ? There's one of two categories. You see someone who is standing under a tidal wave of judgment that's going to fall. You, you see someone who has mind-boggling potential in Christ. That's what you see. You don't see all the things that we used to see. And I'm not saying we don't get to know people like that's not important. In fact, part of seeing people is doing just that. Getting to know their hurts, their past, their experiences, their desires, what they love. Knowing people, but seeing what they might be if they were to hear the gospel in faith. I mean, someone comes to our doors dressed in a very nice suit, very eloquent, well-spoken. Looks like he's got money. We're going to have a certain way of perceiving him. Yet, without Christ, what does he have? His health will be stripped away. His wealth will be lost. And he will stand naked before God. He will give an account for his life. But you see someone who's utterly broken, like they don't have a penny to their name, dirty, someone you wouldn't associate on any other occasion, yet you come and you hear them proclaim Jesus Christ as his Lord, and you'll find that you can have one of the dearest brothers and sisters in your life. Hear me. There are all types of things right now trying to identify us into people groups. Christ redefines not only our identity, but our relationships. Christ is the one and only the one who redefines how we see people. We're not allowed to just look at people the way we used to look at people. And not only that, let me say, sometimes when we have a really good theology of God and we know that if somebody doesn't repent, right, doesn't receive the Lord, that they'll receive the wrath of God, we immediately think that we're God in that scenario, and if they reject the gospel, we see them as a sinner who's, who's got wrath upon them, and we treat them as such. Friends, that's you! Like, you're the one, you should know what that's like. You should have been there. You had the wrath of God upon you before you heard the gospel. Where's the grace? In fact, I don't know if I see a bigger determining factor of someone who's never received grace in the fact that they are so slow to give it. If you've really received grace, it ought to be the first thing you give to others. And yet we, we, we do this all the time. We think, well, he might, must not be one of the Lord's elect. He must he'll probably always reject the gospel. Therefore, it's a lost cause. I'm sorry. When did you become God? When did you become eternal? Omniscient? Must have missed it. Fourth, this one's a little more complicated, but I'm going to be very brief here. We need to be linked up if we're going to accomplish this mission. What do I mean by that? Linked up. We actually support link up missions by Brother Richie Allen. It's a great, great title for a missionary. Because the temptation is for us to come together and then pow. All right, now we go out individually. And certainly, look, you should do this individually. Yeah. As opportunities present themselves, you proclaim Christ. This needs to be happening all the time. But we also need to be purposeful about linking arms to evangelize people. I think based on even just experience, a reality as I see it, new Christians have a lot more unbelieving friends. You ever notice that? 
It's really just the way it usually works. You've got a new believer that comes to Christ. They've got this whole network of unbelieving friends. And so then you have a mature Christian, and often their network of unbelieving people tends to be much smaller. Just is. They've given their life for the church. Ministry takes up a lot of their time, and a lot of those relationships they used to have have been strained, broken even, eventually maybe given way. We need new believers, which we're really short on right now. But we need them to be linking arms with mature believers. So new believers may not know the gospel as well, but they have a larger network of unbelieving people in their lives. Then you've got mature Christians who've got a smaller network, but they understand the gospel a lot better. They're able to proclaim it and apply it to people's lives. Link up strengths, weaknesses, modeling it for younger Christians. Listen, just because you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 years, the reality is you could still be very young in the faith. And hear me, there's no shame in that. I think evangelism needs to be a group activity. We need to team up, link up to accomplish this mission. Finally, one more. Not only do we need to be controlled by the love of Jesus and must have our emboldened by our confidence in the gospel, we must see people through the lens of Jesus. We need to be linked up. But this one's the hardest one. And it's we need to be compelled to take risk. This is, I think, the biggest stumbling block in our culture. But you know what? A culture of evangelism requires risk. The reality is, this should be a little embarrassing for us. I'm not trying to embarrass us. I talk about us being we, me, and there. But, but when we think about it, and we put it into perspective in our society, the biggest risk we face in sharing the gospel is probably just rejection. I mean, let's be honest. Very few here will probably have to give up their lives for sharing the gospel. There are literally people at this moment who are facing death because of this. And yet, for us, it's just rejection. Maybe the Lord will honor us one day with that privilege. But really, the biggest risk we're taking is a broken relationship. I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us have valued the relationship over honoring God, loving Christ, and proclaiming the gospel. So I, I want to challenge us to take risk. Be a little dangerous. It's uncomfortable. I get it. It's, it's challenging. You will be rejected. You will be despised. Guess what? So is our Lord. <laughs> the love of Christ has to control us. I mean... We've said it over and over again. We've seen it over and over again here. Life is short. You hear that a lot around here. The reality is you probably need to hear it a little bit more. I think one of the biggest deceptions we have going on in this culture is life is going to last forever. It's not. I mean, how much time do we spend thinking of retirement 20, 30 years down the road when you're not even guaranteed tomorrow? None of us are. So let's just say, let's just say God gives you 50 years. That's short. It's really short. How are you going to spend it? That could take you all kinds of places, but right now we're talking about evangelization. Your neighbor's life is short. Your lost family member's life is short. 
And right now we're standing in a valley of dry bones surrounded by every side. And the only thing that is going to bring those bones back together is the word of God working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Are we going to stand there and remain silent? That's the question. Or are we going to be a community that takes risk? That stands with bold confidence in the gospel, controlled by the love of Christ, seeing people through the lens of Christ, teaming up one with another to encourage and compel one another towards greater faithfulness in this area. I'll conclude, and we can talk. If you want, you might be angry with me, that's okay. Please keep the big picture in view. God has always been on mission to bless the families of the earth. By recognizing and reconciling all things to himself in Christ. God's plan was promised to Abraham, passed on to Israel, accomplished in Jesus Christ, and now is being proclaimed by the church. This is our place in redemptive history. We're part of the story. The church is to bear witness to the gospel through our lives together and proclaim the gospel in our gatherings. Church, after hearing this gospel then, we are to go out into a lost and dying world, into the valley of dry bones, and proclaim the word of Christ to every corner of the world. Controlled by our love for Jesus, emboldened by our confidence in the gospel, reminded to see people through the lens of Christ, linked up to accomplish this mission, and compelled to take risk for the sake of all the families of the earth. Spurgeon says this. I'll close with this. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Any questions, thoughts, comments at all. What do you think? Doesn't that all just narrow down to your love for Christ? I mean, the more I love Christ, the more I love people. The more, the, and, and the more I love Christ, the more bolder I get. I mean, it all gets down to simply my love in Christ. The stronger I love Christ, because if it's simply loving people, when you do something to disappoint me, which you're going to do because with it, then how much, you know, my love's going to be shaken in you. Right. But as if, but if it's based on the love of Christ, my love of people is stronger, and, uh, and, and the bolder I get to, uh, to, uh, to declare Christ. Absolutely. And how much do you think also it might have to do with once we get them into the church, we don't know what to do with them then? Like, like once we get them baptized, now what? Right? Because guess what? The Great Commission doesn't stop at baptizing them, does it? Who, who is taking up new believers and discipling them? You know, I, I've, always, I've said a lot. I've said for years that, you know, that's where we seem to drop, um, drop the ball. We're real good with, with sharing Christ with people. We're real good getting them in, in church. And then it's like, okay, I've got you saved, got you baptized, and it's... I see here tell you to study your Bible. Okay, uh, how do I do that? Right. So, so I want to transition this because this is really where our hearts are for Wednesday night and Sunday school. It's part of why we grow. Okay? Because, again, it's not there. And, and forgive us if we've pitched it this way. 
it's not there for you just to have a group of people surrounding you to feel more comfortable in a setting and so on. It can't stop there. Sunday school and Wednesday night happen. So you take these things and, and you let it form your week and mission in making disciples in your community. That you take even just simple culture of evangelism things, simple challenges we make week in and week out through the Word of God that you hear Sunday school and Wednesday night. And you say, now how is it practical? What's, what's the practice and how do I practice it? And, and you see, we, we, are, we are very much in a culture that doesn't get that that's actually what church is supposed to be. We, we say we know that church is not consumeristic in nature. But do we really believe it? I mean, our, I just know, I know, I grew up here, guys. I know, I had one of the best Bible teachers, in my opinion, in the world in Mark Tuso. And every Sunday, I would go home and say, man, I'm just blown away by how great that sermon is. He has such great knowledge of the world. And then, that's it? That was a great sermon, man. He really got fired up on that one. Now what? Do we not understand really? Listen, you think that we preach the same sermon over and over here, and probably we, we could be accused of that, about how central the Word of God is, yes. But do we really get it? It's not central so we can say, yeah, there's a lot of things we can know about that. It's central because you and I have been placed on mission to proclaim it. It's central because it is your very life. So, so listen, when, when we begin to, to go through these things, yeah, it's going to seem a lot like a classroom coming up in here. We've done that before. We're going to go back to that. But, but we wanted to go through Worship, Grow, Serve, particularly for this purpose, that you would see that this is our purpose and why we exist as a church. That you would take these things and say, okay, who am I discipling? Who can I disciple where I can reproduce these things? But it starts with sharing the gospel. And let me just say, first off, men with families, it starts in your home. Wives, too. It starts in your home. Your, your main disciple maker or main disciple that you have in your home, an opportunity for discipleship, are your children. Husband, your wives. So, so if your wives aren't here on, on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights, or your husband's not able to make it on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, how are you investing in them? How are you taking this and saying, let's sit down and see exactly what was, what was shown in the Word of God? You think you're going to offend me if you ask for my manuscript and notes? You think that I don't want to be able to equip you to do that? Of course I do. Would love to help you in any way I can. But we're going to start that training here because we're about to get serious in making disciples. Because I'm sick of life being so short and looking back, and it's been five years since I've been here now, and saying, Where, why aren't we proclaiming Christ? What, what are we doing? What am I doing? So please come back. <laughs> We're on mission here, folks. You know that? Yeah. Any other questions? I promise I won't preach at you if you ask me. Thoughts? I think that was probably very hard for you to do, but um, I appreciate you doing it. Thanks. That's very sweet. I needed it. Well, and I did too. I think, don't you think, I, uh, I think I know... I struggle with things like the sinner's prayer sometimes, right? Because I, because in a culture we've made it just repeat it and you're saved. But we haven't replaced it with anything. And that's not right, right? So, so we haven't, part of it, yeah, it's on your pastors and how we haven't adequately trained you on how to share the gospel. But guys, 
it's coming. We're, we're writing right now a spiritual formation class that's going to teach you how to study your Bible and prepare you for evangelism. And then we're going to teach you an evangelism class. And we're going to sit in here at some point in the next year and share the gospel with each other over and over and over again. We're going to conquer some fear. And, and, and let me be honest with you. Our numbers might even dwindle down. Honestly. We've talked about that. But if they do, Jesus ministered three and a half years primarily to 12 people and one of those betrayed him. And those 11 people changed the world. But, but don't don't run away. Because, guys, there's such great purpose in this. For your, for your children's sake, for your family's sake, for your community's sake. This is our mission. All right. Y'all ready to pray? Let's do it. Lord, Father, you know our weakness. Lord, you know more than anyone how we struggle. And really, let's just say on behalf of all the First Baptist Church of Great Gables and myself, we, we ask for forgiveness for... Really, at times, our coldness of heart and our lack of love for you, as our brother Danny said, Father, really comes down to whether or not we love you. And even our lack of love for people, Father, our lack of confidence in the gospel of your Son, which is the power unto salvation. Father, we ask for forgiveness for our fear of people, for our unwillingness to take risk. And Father, I'm chief. Forgive me. Lord, would you please allow this word to penetrate our hearts? Would you... Remind us of your plan from eternity past to redeem for yourself a people for Christ. And that plan includes the proclamation of the gospel which you've entrusted to us. Father, please forgive us, heal us, and help us by your grace to be more faithful in this gospel proclamation. Father, remind us, Lord, that this is, this is not just about bringing people to church. This is about going out and being the church. Father, I have a wonderful youth pastor in this church, Jeff Walker, who always would tell me, if you had the opportunity to invite somebody to church or share the gospel with them, share the gospel with them. <laughs> and so, Lord, help us and encourage us to do that, that we would see the importance of gospel proclamation. You would equip and encourage us to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.